0: How's everybody? (laughs) So let's pray. I want to be very sensitive to Holy Spirit this morning. God's presence, He's graced us so wonderfully with His presence. (laughs) The angels have graced us with their presence. So um, let's just bow our heads. Father, we want to honor you. We want to honor who you are. We thank you for your presence. Thank you for your glory manifesting. Thank you for the angels of heaven that are here. Thank you for every saint uh, that's here, Lord. Thank you for every person that's here. Father, I thank you for the blessing of God upon this church, upon this family of God. I thank you for the revelation that you're bringing forth in this hour. and Father, I ask humbly, sir, that you would anoint me, that you would help me this morning. I need help this morning. So I just thank you that you helped me this morning to be an effective minister of your word, to release what you want released to the people, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going <laughs> to, I don't know where this is going to go, um, yeah, there is, uh, there is a Jewish tradition Uh, when asked why did God create anything, but specifically why did He create you or why did He create us as humanity? And there's a certain stream of Jewish thought that would say He created you so that He could give and bestow pleasure on you. So that He could give and bestow pleasure on you. Uh, We don't tend to think of God in that way, (laughs) mostly because in some respects we've lost connection with our Hebraic roots and we're more influenced by uh, the Stoic Greek philosophy. You know, it's really interesting, and this kind of leads into where I'm going this morning. It's very interesting that most of uh, the philosophical foundations that we have in the world came from this same time period uh, that Christ lived. If you think about it, Plato, uh, Pythagoras, all those guys, right? That you maybe, or maybe you did or didn't read about in school, right? (laughs) But they really established, I mean, even today our culture is built and established on some of those philosophies. And so the Stoics had a philosophy That uh, any kind of pleasure was wicked and evil. And that is something that has uh, certainly been a strand or a stream that has run throughout church history. One of the church mystics uh, believed it was a sin even to see a beautiful picture or a beautiful sunset or something like that. If you saw a sunset, to be able to take that in and drink that in and enjoy that, they would say that was a sin. And so... It's no wonder that people want to turn away from God because actually the truth of the matter is, and this is just a scientific fact, but it's self-evident. I mean, you don't need science to back this up. It's a truth that's self-evident that we're created to really avoid pain and pursue pleasure. And so what's happened is is that we can uh, present to people in such a way that, they begin to believe that sin is a source of pleasure and God is a source of pain. And it's because of the way we've framed things out. So I've really been trying to get a language for what's been happening with me and inside of me for the last, I don't know, a couple of years at least, but especially the last year, year and a half, give or take. And uh, and there's things that I just know the Holy Spirit has had me be passionate about. And there are there are foundations that for whatever reason, we keep going over and over and over in this church. And it's like the Holy Spirit hasn't released me to move on or talk about something else yet. And so if I sound like a broken record, uh, I, oh, I don't think I'm broken. <laughs> I just I just think it's what and what the Lord is doing. And one of the dangers in what I'm doing Uh, is, I don't know how else to say this, so hear the whole thing, because I'm I'm struggling to find a language for it, uh, because I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. But I I think the, the church stream that I have been a part of, so I'm going to use we when I talk about this, because when you talk about the church, there's various different expressions of that. The expression that I have been a part of, we have used the Bible in such a way that we have preached people into bondage instead of into freedom. We have, in some senses, preached them into curses instead of blessings <laughs> and into death rather than life. And, yes, I mean, and, and, but here's the worst part of it. We have preached people into Pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. Comparing our righteousness to other people's righteousness. And using that to either hate on people or using it as motivation to do better. I finally got a language for it because I was reading something in the break. (laughs) Just trying to keep my mind clear with exactly where the Lord wants us to go. And I, and I, I saw something on my phone during the break, and there was a, uh, uh, it it was on Twitter. So, there was a, a minister that was tweeting out, right? And he was talking about this wonderful men's conference that he had, and he was talking about these sons who were filled with hatred and anger and bitterness because they had grown up without a father presence in their life. And how because of the ministry that had happened, they had responded to uh, the ministry uh, and had made a commitment. Now listen to this. They had made a commitment that they were going to be better men than their fathers. And that just struck me as wrong. Not that they would be better men. I mean, there's there's a better way to frame it is what I'm saying. You don't have to frame it as... I'm better because I'm better than my father because I'm going to be there for my kids. Actually, what you're doing is you are enacting the power of what's called a bitter root judgment. You are actually enacting, Jesus said it this way. He said, Judge not lest you be judged. For with the measure you meet out, it will be measured back to you. So literally what happened was a spiritual principle was put into place when we say, I'm going to make a commitment to be better than fill in the blank, and it's another person, then what we've done is we've enacted the power of a bitter root judgment to come back and work against us. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever sins you release, they're released Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. So when I set my righteousness up as greater than somebody else's righteousness, I automatically move into judgment and in a sense I'm retaining the sin of the person that I think I'm better than. Which means I'm actually bringing the power of that into my own life and into my own bosom. Therefore, I've been set up to fail. Which is why legalism doesn't produce life. And so where I'm coming from, and I'm very much in line with the formation of the doctrines of the church for the first four centuries. From the first century to 400 A.D. when really orthodoxy was established. And please understand orthodoxy is just a term that means a rule of faith. That was established right so where I'm trying to come from is let's say let's don't use the Bible in such a way that it produces bondage or that it produces death let's don't be like Peter who takes a sword and cuts off the ear of the one who's in opposition to Jesus coming to arrest him you realize there's a metaphor there why did he why why is that in the bible why did they even bother to put that you realize everything in the gospels is there for a specific reason Uh, john writes at the end of his gospel he says there's not enough books in the world to contain what's written or what jesus did there's not enough books in the world that can contain the works that he did so why did they highlight specific works that he did Primarily because there's a lesson in each one. There's a metaphor. There's a deeper truth. There's a literal truth, but there's also a deeper truth uh, that that points to. And so when we become disciples of Jesus who have not been dealt with sufficiently by the Holy Spirit in our zeal and dedication, because remember, Peter was the one who said, Lord, I will go with you to the death. Watch what he did. Though all these others abandon you, I will go with you to the death. I'm better than they are. And what did he do? He enacted the power of judgment. That So that's why Jesus could look at him and say, Peter, before the night's over, you'll deny me three times. How did he know that? Because he understood the power that he was operating from was not a power that could produce life or produce true righteousness. So therefore, to demonstrate His self-righteousness, He takes a sword and cuts off the ear of a Gentile, of a heathen, of somebody who's in opposition to Jesus. And so what it's showing us is that as disciples of Christ, if we come from a place of zeal that's based on self-righteousness, and we're better than somebody else, what we do is take the sword of the Spirit, and we cut off the ears of our listeners, impairing them so that when they hear the message, they can't actually hear it. So, it's not until Jesus is raised from the dead that he comes back to Peter and asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And then says, if you love me, feed my sheep. So, we have to approach things in a way that people are fed the bread of life and not impaired in their walk. Because it's real easy. I mean, it's real easy to trigger pride, and it's real easy to trigger self righteousness. And it's very easy to use the Bible to do that. But the Bible, now this may shock you, the, and this is what I'm going to attempt to prove. The Bible is not the source of our faith. Your faith does not come from hearing the Bible. Paul never said that in Romans 10:17. Those of you that came out of a movement similar to mine. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the... Word of God. And the Word of God for Paul was not the Scriptures, because he differentiates. The Word of God for Paul was the message of Christ and the Christ event. That if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So the message was the message of Christ, not the message of Scripture. So faith does not come from hearing or quoting Scriptures. Faith comes from the person of Christ. I can prove it to you because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse the first couple of verses, it says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who's Who's the cloud of witnesses he's talking about? All the Old Testament saints. Remember, the New Testament had not been written yet. A New Testament list of books had not been put together yet. The only Scriptures that they had, when they talk about Scripture, the only Scriptures that they had were what we call Old Testament Scriptures. And in spite of what people may tell you, the truth is, we're not even sure what they consider to be their list. There are some books we're sure about, but there could have been others included in that list. But my point is, when Paul talks about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And, and when he's talking about the Word of God, he's talking about the Gospel. So, in Hebrews, when he says, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse, couple verses, he just got finished, the author of Hebrews, talking about all the Old Testament, well not all of them, but several of the Old Testament scriptures and stories. He starts with, uh, with Abel, I think. He goes through Abraham. He goes through Moses. He mentions Gideon. He mentions all those stories that are in the scriptures. And he says, okay, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Somebody say witness. Because the point is is that Scripture is always a witness. In and of itself, it's not an authority. So watch what he does. If Paul was going to teach that faith comes out of the Scriptures, or the writer of Hebrews was going to teach that faith comes out of the Scriptures, he had a great opportunity to do it right here in Hebrews 12 the first couple of verses. But instead, what he says is this. He says, Seeing then that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Let us shake off every sin and every weight, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Watch this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, Scripture is not the source of your faith. It's not. If it was, everybody that believes the Bible and preaches the Bible would be a spiritual giant. The source of your faith, the source of my faith, if you are Christian, is the person of Christ. Let me read this to you. This is a a scholarly guy. It's writing in the uh, 1914 was when he gave this address. I can't really pronounce his name and it doesn't really matter, so that's why I'm not giving it. It says, Christ did not write anything. It seems that if one reflects enough on this fact, one can somewhat understand the very essence of the work of Christ. As a rule... Other religious leaders of humanity, founders of various philosophical schools, have written readily and in abundance, and yet Christ wrote nothing at all. Does this mean that in its essence the work of Christ has nothing in common with the work of any of the philosophers, teachers, or leading representatives of the intellectual life of mankind? Furthermore, has the church herself ever viewed her founder... As one of the teachers of mankind. Has she ever considered his teachings as the essence of his work? No. With the utmost exertion of her theological strength, the Christian church has defended as the greatest religious truth that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. One in essence with God the Father, who became incarnate on earth, for that truth, for that truth of who Christ is, the incarnation, for that truth, the greatest fathers of the church labored to the point of blood. They were unbending in the battle for this truth. They did not yield a single inch to their adversaries, Lit- literally not even a single iota which in the Greek language differentiates, and then he gives the word in Greek, which would be translated, of similar essence from, he gives the same word in the Greek with a little nuance, coessential. In other words, they were so committed to who Christ was that they said that his, his being, he is of the same essence of divinity as the Father, not of similar essence, of the same essence. And they were willing to die over that distinction. (laughs) And then, it's really interesting. If you just look at what was going on in the first four centuries of church history, it's very, very interesting. They weren't trying to compile a list of books to figure out which ones were right. You have a couple of witnesses in the early church fathers where they talk about the four Gospels, they talk about the writings of Paul. And, and they weren't trying to be exclusive to Christian content. They were just saying, if you're going to teach publicly, here's the books that we recommend. But they didn't actually compile and decide on a list of books for centuries. And they weren't worried that none of the councils in the church, none of, none of that stuff was trying to decide which one belongs in the canon, which one is the Word of God and which one isn't the Word of God. That everything that they were doing was centering on, we've got to get this right, who is the person of Christ, which teaches us something. A couple of things that, that we can learn here. And one of the things that we can learn is that being a Christian is about being more than doing. They were they were uh, they were concerned about the being of Christ. How do we understand the being of Christ? How do we understand the economy of God in terms of His revelation to humanity, and and what they said, and what is the cardinal Christian truth? Is that the definitive revelation of who God is is not found from stringing scriptures together from the Old Testament. It is found in the person of Christ when the Bible. Bible says, when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he's not talking about your Bible. He is not. The word there is in the Greek is logos, and it literally means the, the, the mind of God. So if we want to understand who the person of Christ is and actually be Christian in our thinking... I'm very strong on this. Then what John, then we start with the gospel of John and what John is telling us is that in the beginning, the word beginning there. Notice he didn't say at the beginning. It's a very important distinction. I know it sounds like I'm splitting hairs. In the beginning, not at the beginning, because in the beginning is a place, not a demarcation of time. Because you can have no beginning with a God who existed for eternity past. In terms of the demarcation of time, you cannot have a beginning. And actually, if you read the Genesis account, you do not have space until day two. And you cannot accrue, you cannot account for time without space. So in the beginning is not, a, re- is not a, a reference to time, it's a reference to a place. And so here's how this works. Think about this. Before any created thing existed, what or who existed? God, right? And God is infinite. So th- this, is a, uh, this is a concession to our carnality. But if you think in terms of space, before creation, there is no space except God fills it all. And because creation came out from God but is not God, it's something other than God, He had to create space inside Himself before He could create creation. So here's what happened. Literally, He opened up a space inside Himself. The first empty space was inside God Himself. Otherwise, there would be no room for anything else to exist. And that space is like a womb. You see it at every level of creation. In the beginning, God creates space for creation. Then He has to create space for the man who's made in his image then the last thing he does is make a woman in whom he creates space in which he can put his image so it's true on every level does that make sense so in the beginning actually is in the womb of god in the womb of god was the word the son Not created, but eternally proceeding from the Father. Logos. Here's how Paul does this. Watch. This is going to help you with faith. This is going to help you get a miracle. Because if you're trying to get faith from Scripture, you're going to the wrong fountain. I know that just... In the beginning was the Word. Now watch this. Paul does this in the first few verses. I'm sorry, John does this in the first few verses. Everything was made by Him. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So in other words, out of the womb of God, or in the womb of God, out comes the Logos, the generative principle of God. The inner mind of God that is the mind behind everything. that is the logic, if you will, because we get the word logic from Logos, that is the logic or the thinking to everything that exists came out of the person of Christ, came out of the Word, who is the inward mind of God expressed. It's not, that's why in the beginning was the Word, it's not Genesis To Revelation, it's everything in existence. That's what John is saying. The logic behind everything in existence came out of the Son who was in the inner space of God. So if you want to understand who Christ, you cannot understand who Christ is until you understand that He is the expression of the mind of God. And He is the absolute matrix of all of creation. And therefore, the source and the perfecter, the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. You still breathing? You also came out of the Word, which means there is a logic to you. There, there, the, you, there is a logic to who you are that is found nowhere else but in the person of Christ who comes out of the very inner essence of the heart of God. So in a very real sense, you came from the inner heart of God. There is a record of who you were meant to be. Paul did it this way in Ephesians 1.5. He said, he said, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless before Him... In love. That we might receive the adoption as sons and an inheritance. So in other words, God had a scroll. I did it a couple months ago. I called the scroll of your destiny. So that, the logic, the logic of Christ is your scroll. That God had a had a identity, a sense of being that He gave to you out of the Logos. He had a, a, a and then He uniquely tailored a life for you. He He planned days for you. The psalmist said in Psalm one thirty nine. So He uniquely tailor made you for the circumstances that you're going through to be an overcomer, to manifest your sonship in the middle of whatever you're dealing with. And it's not a gender thing. It's, it's an inheritance thing. We, we understand this, right? Because first service, if you want, you can get the teaching from the first service. I quoted, oh, Jesus. I don't want to open that can of worms. Get the teaching from the first service. It's not a gender issue. So watch this. So that means that there was, that, that you, there was a logic to you before the foundation of the world and you came out of the very heart of God. And God, and, and therefore only, only by returning to that place can you find the real meaning, to find out the truth of who you are, find out the real meaning about who you are and make any kind of sense of significance out of your life. That's why He's the author and perfecter of your faith because whatever you need is specifically In the mind of God for you. But whatever you need is not specifically in the Scriptures for you. But whatever you need is specifically in the mind of God for you, and the mind of God is expressed in the person of the Son. So when you get into him as the author and finisher of your faith, then everything that you need specifically is already custom designed for you so that you can live a custom designed life. Therefore, faith comes out of him, not from a book. See where I'm going with this? Now, what's so interesting, here's what John does. Watch this. John says, he talks about the logos. He says everything that was created comes out of him. So you're connected to all of creation if you're connected to him. You're connected to the past, present, and the future if you're connected to him. You're connected to things visible and invisible if you're connected to him. You're connected to resources on the earth and resources in heaven if you're connected to him. You just got to figure out. How, you've got to learn from him, who is the truth, how the system works, in order to manifest it. And it's more about being than doing right so then john says this he says and the word in him was life and the life was the light of men right so your life and all the light you need to live it is in him another way of saying it and the, now watch this and the word became flesh, and dwell among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then He talks a little bit about Moses. Then in John chapter 1, verse 18, He says this, but the only begotten Son, in the original language it doesn't say that. It says the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now, he speaks president's language. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. He's dealing with historical events. The historical event of creation. The historical event of of his human life. But then when he finishes the prologue in verse 18, he gives his present tense. And he says, the Son who is in the bosom of the Father... He has declared Him. He says, no one has seen God in any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him to us. Now, He did declare Him, because if He did declare Him, then we need a teaching. But the church was not fighting and shedding their blood over a teaching. They were fighting and shedding their blood over the being of who Christ was. So that being was more important than doing. And really, my friends that are scholars, you know, in the Jewish world, they'll tell you this. Jesus did not really say anything that the rabbis had not already said. Except his claim to divinity. And he did not die. It's an interesting passage in John. Again, I'm just all over the place, but I hope this is connecting with you. Interesting thing that Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says, for which of the good works that I do do you want to kill me? And they said, for none of the works are we going to kill you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And if you look very closely at the trial of Jesus, he died over the issue of who he was, not about anything that he did or anything that he taught. Because the issue of was over His identity. So if you think what I'm doing is not important, or you think you've just been to Bible school, you don't know what it means to be a Christian. Because you are not on a good foundation until you understand who He is as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, Peter had to make the confession. Remember, Jesus asked His disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're a good teacher. You're right in line with the rabbis and the Torah. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you for on this rock... What rock? The identity of who He was. On this rock I will build My church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 300 years before we had a canon list of Scriptures. So the Bible is not your foundation. The Bible is not the head of the church. The Bible is a gift from the church to you that contains within it the witness and the canon of our faith. And the purpose of the witness and the canon is to lead you to the foundation, but it is not the foundation. The foundation is your confession about who Christ is. So the difference between a prevailing life or a life where you get your teeth kicked in is what do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who is the Messiah to you? And does your thinking line up with the doctrine of faith? Does your thinking line up with the reality of who Christ is? Because if your confession Deviates from who Christ is, you've moved off of a firm foundation, and now you're bait for every storm and devil that wants to kick your teeth in. So, watch this. So, here's what John's doing. He's saying, Let me do it this way He came from the mind of God, He became flesh in His own creation, He returned into the bosom of the Father. And from that place now to believers, He declares who God is. You know what the word bosom is there in the Greek? The womb. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the womb of the Father, He has declared Him. Meaning He's in the closest possible place. In other words, if you want to know what the interior of God looks like, it's Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about stuff, it's Jesus. The, the evangelical church is illly equipped to deal with what's being called the new atheism. And our kids are running off to colleges and professors are infiltrating their mind with this stuff. You know how it works? There, there's a book. I don't even want to say the name of the book because I don't want you all running out and buying it. And I just want you to know their arguments are terrible. But we're ill-equipped as evangelicals to think these things through. But here's how they do it. They say God is a monster. And you know how they prove to you God is a monster? They say, look, he's killing babies in the Old Testament. Here's a quote from Psalms where it says that he takes good pleasure. In, and it's in there. He, he takes good pleasure in an infant's skull being crashed, uh, smashed against a rock. This is a God who's holding a 400 year grudge against the Amalekites and so sends Saul out to settle a score that was four centuries old with people four centuries removed from it. Take them out of their homes and kill every man, woman, child. You know, there's another place in the Bible, Numbers 31. That I'm not afraid to talk about this because they're talking about it in universities. They're talking about it in books. They're talking about it in documentaries. They're talking about it on the History Channel. But did you know that in Numbers, I think it's 31, there is an incident where, where Israel is told to, to, to a, a group of people that, to, to destroy them. We're talking genocide. But you know who they were allowed to keep? The virgins and the young girls. You know why? So they could make them sex slaves. And that was ordered by God. So what happens when your grandkids and your kids go into the university is they have to take philosophy classes or whatever, and, and they have professors that confront them with these things. And we haven't had an answer for them. Because the bottom line is, is that not everything that's in, a bi- in the Bible is a statement of truth about who God is. Sorry. Sorry. If you believe that, you've got a real problem, and you have to begin to try to justify genocide and rape as divine, and that makes you no better than Isis. You can claim that your God has some kind of superior morality like Augustine did. Say, our God and whatever God says is good. No, whatever God does is good. And whatever God does comes out of a place of love. And the reason He had to become flesh was because we could not get the revelation of the interior heart of God apart from the person of Christ. Because He did not want to know you through the medium of a book. He wanted to know you personally. And the only way you get to know the heart of God is you develop an Ongoing personal relationship with the person of Christ. Which means you have to learn how to, how to hear Christ speak to you without the Scriptures. That doesn't mean contrary to the Scriptures. doesn't mean against the Scriptures. It just means that He is a living Word speaking from the heart, the interior of God into your life. Carrying your scroll of destiny of who you are. So here's how this works, right? So, so, any, so here's the thing about God. God has always been like who Jesus was. Jesus never authorized you to do anything to your enemies in terms of violence. Jesus said, bless those that curse you. Jesus said, love, the, love not just your neighbor, love your enemies. Where are we practicing that in the world today? Certainly isn't during the political season. Jesus, Deuteronomy says that God causes it to rain on the obedient and He shuts up the heaven on the disobedient. Jesus said, be like your Father in heaven who is merciful and causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So the defense, so I have I have a conflict. Do I believe Deuteronomy 28 that says the blessing of God is contingent upon obedience or do I believe that Jesus said the the manifestation of the Father is that was never true that that he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. There's conflict there. Which one do I have to take? If I'm a Christian, I go with Jesus. And I don't have this other old angry God of the Old Testament. I understand that God has always been like Jesus. God will always be like Jesus. And and He pours out His mercy and His grace on the just and the unjust. I hate to tell you, because it really helps prop up your self-righteousness, if I tell you your obedience brings blessing and protects you from the curses. But I'm going to tell you, it ain't so. Are you breathing? Are you sure? So the earliest, you you understand, please understand this. The theology of the church does not come from scholarship. The theology of the church came from worship and relating to the person of Christ. That's where it comes from. So that in baptism, right, for new converts, right? So here's what they would pray at baptism. They would pray a prayer, and what they would do is over the waters, they would invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they would say, send forth your spirit from the womb of the Father. Because the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, because Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And basically what they said was turn these waters into a womb. So let me do it this way for you. When when the word becomes flesh, he's carrying you. Because you came out from him. He's carrying you without the record of sin. He's carrying you without the record of your faults. He's carrying you without all your mistakes. He's carrying you without all your brokenness, without all your sickness, whether it be in soul or body. Yes? Then He dies your death. He experiences your rejection. He experiences your punishment. He dies your death so that He can turn it around when He gets raised from the dead. Right? Right? And where does he go after he gets raised from the dead? Where does he go? Into the bosom, into the womb, into the interior of the Father. And who does he bring with him? He brings you. He brings you. So that it's only through the humanity. I've talked a lot about the divinity of Christ, but He was fully divine but fully human. Why? Because He wanted to create an at one Do you get it? An at-one-ment. Between God and humanity. Between the uncreated and the created in the one person. So therefore, your access... Don't, do not go to the Father on your own. Because you're bypassing the way, the truth, and the life. If you try to go to the Father apart from Jesus, you'll get messed up because you'll find an angry God. You'll find a judgmental God. You'll find a mean God. You'll find a violent God. You cannot come to the Father except through the Son, He is the divine expression. So that you are living in a realm inside the bosom of the Father. And real Christianity is how do I manifest that. Real Christianity is living from that realm. Let me show it to you. I have one verse of Scripture. I've got to read something from the Bible. I quote a lot of Scripture. But i got to open my Bible and make it legal. Come with me to 1 John. Does this make sense to you? How am I doing on time? Okay, I can do this real quick. First John chapter 1, verse 5. Watch this. This is the message we have heard from him. I'd like to suggest to you, this wasn't necessarily part of Jesus' earthly teaching. That what the apostles are saying is, you can live in direct communion and direct communication from God. And this is what we're hearing from God in the person of Christ. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. Do you see that? It's not about you doing something. It's about the being of God. That's what Christianity is. It's a revelation of who God is. And as a result, a revelation of who you are and what that means. That's what it is. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, if we walk where? In the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. Okay, come with me back to baptism real quick what they would say is they would pray, Lord, let the Spirit come upon these waters so that these waters become a womb. So that when the, the the converts stepped into the waters of baptism, what the early church thought was that ancestral sin, everything that would blind you from being able to see God in the light was wiped away. Or we could do it this way. If you go back to some stuff I taught before on the, your scroll of destiny, when you step into the baptismal font, whatever was written on your the circumstances of your life about you, gets washed away. And what God wrote from eternity past about you is born into the earth. Therefore you are born of water and of the Spirit. And because ancestral sin is washed away, now you can see the kingdom of God. Because now you're in the light. Now watch this. Is he talking about this light? Because if you walk by this light, what happens? If you walk by your senses, your five physical senses, what happens? You automatically internalize things about you that aren't true. And you manifest them. Yes? So the light he's talking about is a different kind of light. It's a different spectrum of light. Because watch this. The light that is here is here to contain and to reveal sin. The light that we have here carries a record of sin. And Jesus brought you into this light, passed you through it, reordering you in his obedience to the Father, died and descended into Hades for you, and then was raised and brought back into a realm that John's talking about the light. And in this light, there's no record of sin, because the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses you from all sin. So here's how this works. You begin to engage God through Christ. You begin to walk in a realm of light that you did not have access to before. And you have a major conflict going on inside because you have the you that's being revealed by the light of God and you have the you that's being revealed by the light of day. You have the you that's carrying the record of sin and you have the you that comes out of the heart of God with no sin on you. And you have to walk according to one pattern. So, when you get in the light and all your stuff gets exposed that you think is bad, the tendency is to do what? Go back into the darkness. And if you walk in the darkness, you have no fellowship with Him. So, here's my message. Real simple, all right? Make it really, I'm going to boil it down, make it really simple. Jesus reveals out of the heart of God, out of His innermost being, that God loves you. That He really loves you. And He loves all of you. The good, the bad, the ugly. He, He's embraced it all and brought all of it, all of you, into the center Of his heart. So he could show you a you. That he sees. When he looks at you. Without your mess. And the question becomes. Which you. Are you going to believe in? Because whichever one you believe in the most. Is the one you're going to manifest. The clearest. All right. yeah. So, we're going to take communion. <laughs> I started this by saying God wants to give you pleasure. God wants to bestow on you pleasure. Out of that realm of light, there's ecstasies. Out of that realm of light, there's glories. Out of that realm of light, there's a river of pleasure flowing at the right hand of God. That God wants you to have and enjoy. And the wine is but a foretaste of the ecstasy that awaits you in that room. Which is one of the reasons we take wine at communion. We don't, but we should. But, you know, we have friends of Bill Wilson. Some of you know what that means. Google it. <laughs> so when you're coming today, what you're partaking of is symbolic of your new life in Christ. When John's writing, he's he's thinking of the communion cup. He's not thinking of some mystical blood hanging in the atmosphere somewhere that we plead over our kids. Did I just say that? He's thinking of the communion cup because it's through the body and the blood of Jesus that you have access to that room. And it's through the blood of Jesus as you drink the cup that cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So anybody that ever told you you can't come to the table with sin does not know what they're talking about. Because you come to the table to get purged from your sin. So you come, the good... And And by the way, when I'm using the word sin, I'm not thinking forensically, ethically, or legalistically. I'm thinking in terms of the nature of your being, which has been flawed because of living in this fallen world. I'm using a healing metaphor, not a forensic metaphor. So when you're getting cleansed from sin, whatever's poisoned your soul is being washed that way. All right. Let's stand up and pray. Did I do all right? I mean, it was all over the board. Told the Lord I needed help at the beginning, didn't I? (laughs) Let's lift our hands. Beloved, I just want to release something over you. There is such a presence. There is such a glory. There is such a manifestation of God's goodness in this room right now. And it's for you. So, Heavenly Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I just present to you every person in here that's struggling with their identity, every person in here that's struggling with their being, every person in here that's struggling with a mountain of circumstances that are seem too overwhelming for them. Lord, I bring each one of those before you, before your broken body, before your shed blood, and before your light. And right now, I release over them, in the name of Jesus Christ, I release the light of Christ, the love of Christ, the power of Christ, the presence of Christ, the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ. Father, let all these things be manifested, all these fruits be given in great abundance unto your kids. Lord, I thank you for an abundant feast that you have spread, an abundant table that you have spread. And right now, I speak healing into your soul. I speak healing into your mind. I speak healing into your relationships. I speak healing into your bodies. Let your physical bodies right now be healed by the power of God let the grace and the mercy of God just flow out of heaven over your lives over your families over your marriages over your generations right now let the power of Christ and the power of his kingdom come over your life right now in Jesus most holy and precious name Come on now, just worship the Son for just a minute with me, if you would. Just, just begin to bless Him. Just begin to magnify Him, either internally from your heart or externally with your mouth. It doesn't matter. But just begin to give Him some thanks and some praise. Lord, we thank You. Lord, we bless You. Lord, we magnify You. Lord, we look unto You as the author and the finisher of our faith. And anyone in here that believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, no matter what you're struggling with, our communion table is open to you. Because what Christ has done for you, let no man deny you access. In Jesus' name, God bless you.